For this special Speakola Reads edition of the Speakola podcast, our sponsor is the Podcast Reader. If you do love reading, words, podcasts, the Podcast Reader is for you. Issue 5 out now. The idea of this new magazine is to cast an intellectually curious eye over the long-form podcast world and then publish lightly edited transcripts of those interviews for your pleasure. Issue 5 is out now. It's got interviews with Elizabeth Anderson and Elaine de Botton in it. So find out more at podread.org. And if you email hello at podread.org and say that you're a Speakola listener, you'll get sent a free PDF of the magazine so you get a sense of what it's all about. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory! I understand sacrifice! Speak over. I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get to the promised land. Speak over. With Tony Wilson. Hello, that's me, Tony Wilson. I am the host of the Speakola podcast, which is a speeches podcast. We have a very clear format. It is speak to a speaker, play the speech. Pretty simple. And the plan is very much to stick with that format. But I thought occasionally I might put up a Speakola Reads episode. And that is just when an author or a writer reads out his or her writing for your enjoyment. And today, that writer is me. I thought I'd read out a piece of my own writing, because in Australia and around the cricket-loving world, we've been thrust into mourning with the loss of one of the greats of the game, Shane Warne, Shane Keith Warne, or just Warney, as he was known to so many around the world. Warne died of a heart attack as he was at the end of a health retreat in Thailand. And his state funeral is scheduled for the MCG next Wednesday. And I thought, back in 2011, I wrote a piece about Warney. It was called The Mile Wide Spin Club. And it was published in a book called Australia, Story of a Cricket Country. And the great cricket writer, Chris Ryan, got me to write this piece They were ranking the greatest ever Australian test cricketers and the top five each had a piece dedicated to them. So for a few weeks, I rang up people who were important in Warren's early life, particularly his school and cricket academy contacts, and I wrote a lengthy piece that ended up being published in that book. And in the aftermath of his death, I put it up online and I had some really lovely feedback on it. And it did have a bit of an obituary sense. And I thought, I've lost a couple of guests over the last couple of days and I haven't got an episode ready. And so I might do what Martin Flanagan did at the end of last year. I might read a piece out. And this can be a different type of Speakola episode. And we might do them semi-regularly, drop them in when the regular form episodes are delayed or, or late. So here it is, my ode to Shane Warne, written in 2011, with the last paragraph updated yesterday. 
Shane Warn, Shane Warn, you are a big flirt. He was in a trough at the time, fresh off the back of the so-called Final Frontier series defeat in India, during which he'd taken 10 disappointing wickets at a disappointing 50.50 average. Warn was standing at third man, about 30 metres from where I was sitting. It was 2001, the first one-dayer, late in India's innings, and Warn's 10 overs were done, and he'd been pasted for 58. The M. Chimaswamy Stadium was alive in a way no cricket stadium in Australia is ever alive. The crowd pulsed with every nudged single, screamed home every boundary. In my part of the stadium, the noise was particularly high-pitched because I'd talked my way into Bangalore's ladies' stand. The idea behind gender segregation was to free Indian women from male expectations, to encourage them to express themselves while not sitting beside husbands, fathers, brothers. And women had flocked in their thousands, singing and chanting, egging each other on to flirt ever more outrageously with the innocent Australian reporter trying to tell the story of their stand. Only one other man was within earshot, the greatest leg spinner in cricket history. Come on, ladies, all together, Shane Warne, Shane Warne, you are a big flirt. The ladies delivered loudly and with impeccable coordination. The Chinnaswamy's noise levels dropped as if even the men in the stadium were temporarily drawn to what was happening behind third man. Warne adjusted his hat and walked in with the bowler. Shane Warne, Shane Warne, you are a big flirt. Again, he refused to divert his gaze. He must have been feeling flat. Photos had been published of him in a training session spat with the coach, John Buchanan, in Chennai. Some pundits reckoned that after his bowling in the first two tests, he shouldn't have been picked in the third. And now he and Australia were getting smashed in the pyjama stuff. But these women were persistent. At the instigation of a policeman's wife named Lashmi, they broke into a Hindi love song, The Heart is Very Indian. With jealous husbands, fathers and brothers booing from the neighbouring stand, they merged it seamlessly into one last rendition of Shane Warn, Shane Warn, you are a big flirt. They'd done enough. Warn turned around, flashed a smile that would one day be so much whiter and blew the women of Bangalore three flamboyant air kisses. The entire stand bounced to its feet, cheering, Shane Warne has blown us flying kisses, beamed a girl, Prathiba, pretending to catch one. Here in India, we like him very much. He is so lovely, your Shane Warne. He is our Warnie. His presence at the top of his mark, spinning a ball from hand to hand, Zinc cream across his nose and blonde hair blowing in the wind was as reassuring to Australian fans as it must have been demoralising to batsmen. If the pitch wasn't turning, survival was difficult. On a turner, it was near impossible. The combination of spin, control, endurance, disguise and physical intimidation was like nothing ever seen. Even after his non-wicket-taking balls, Warney would make an O-shape with his mouth, as if in total disbelief that the batsman had kept it out. Bowling, Shane, back to his mark, do it again. A brisk, straight approach, the economical stride and pivot, the rip and grunt, 
a ball fizzing and its circumvolutions at a volume almost audible to the public watching at home. Bowling Shane, again and again and again. Drip, drip, drip. 40,704 times in Test cricket and surely a lower percentage of bad balls than any leg spinner to have played the game. Warren also knew a thing or two about timing. As surely as Don Bradman's climb to superstardom in 1930 was a panacea to a country in the grips of depression, the coming of Warren threw open the shutters on a game grown musty with sameness. It wasn't that the era of West Indian domination hadn't been good to watch. Malcolm Marshall's opening spell of the Perth Test of 1984-85 was as terrifying as a perfectly sculpted Hollywood splatter flick. Awestruck 13-year-olds wondered not whether the Australians would survive until stumps, but whether our boys might get out of there alive. Unfortunately, those days were just about gone, and such cricketers' blood sport heights were not obtainable by rank-and-file four-pronged seam attacks. Samey bowling lineups dawdled through samey days. Cricket needed something. Almost nobody predicted that the something would be a chain-smoking, canned spaghetti-eating, blonde-tipped leg spinner from Black Rock. Legends abound that Warren came to leg spin late, that he was a hard-hitting middle-order batsman who bowled handy medium paces, that he was first and foremost a footballer who wasn't particularly ambitious about his cricket, None of this is particularly true. Although Warren did aspire to be a full forward or centre-half forward for St Kilda Football Club, he and his leg breaks were simultaneously starring in junior cricket. One day, in year nine, after bowling for a combined Nepean 11 against the exclusive boys' school Mentone Grammar, Warren was immediately offered a sporting scholarship to Mentone because he was a leg spinner. I knew schoolboys couldn't play leg spin, says the school's first 11 coach at the time, John Mason. I told the master that if we could find a good leg spinner, we could win premierships. Mason watched at close quarters no less a schoolboy cricketer than Barry Richards back in his native South Africa. His first extended view of Warren was on a pre-season trip to Tasmania. Warren took three top-order wickets in his opening spell and Mason dashed off the ground, gushing to the schoolmaster. All wrong'uns! He got all three with wrong'uns! Spearheaded by Warren, Mentone won the Premiership that year and nearly backed it up when he was in year 11 and for his final summer at school he was named captain. He dominated games, including one memorable match against Marsland when he took 6 for 21 and 4 for 52 to bowl Mentone to an outright victory, a formidable achievement in two-day 65 overs and innings cricket. Pre-match, Mason and Warren had discussed the tosser's importance to their prospects of winning outright And when the coin came down, Mason was disappointed to see it fall the wrong way. Enter Warney. Immediately, Mason remembers, Shane pointed out that the coin had landed on an angle in the grass and while apologising to the umpires and the opposition captain, he returned the coin to the umpires for a retoss. Here's another furphy about Shane Warne's school days. One of the myths about Shane, says Mason, is that he was a complete rebel. He wasn't. He was house captain and he was also captain of cricket. We wouldn't have made him captain if he was an out-and-out rebel. I was always sorry he didn't make captain of Australia because he was a natural leader. The effect he has on people, he had the ability to inspire others and give them a sense of their own ability. At school, Warren was called Twisty. Teammate Paul Baird remembered the nickname being coined on a Nepean under-16s tour to Shepparton 
when Warren scratched his soon-to-be-much-blonder hair with one hand whilst holding a cheese twisty in the other. We realised, says Baird, that his hair was a dead-set colour match to the twisty. Strawberry blonde, he called it. Baird also recalls his personal struggles against Warren in the local Sandringham Nets. I was getting very cross at Shane one afternoon because the balls he was bowling were turning and bouncing so much that they simply couldn't be hit in any constructive way. You're ruining it, I said to him. Can you please bowl your medium so I can actually get some practice? Baird singles out one game as Warren's arrival against Yarra Valley Grammar in 1986. He says, Shane was in year 11 and on a bowler-friendly wicket he made a counter-attacking 86 to rescue us from four for not many to a defendable schoolboy total of 120-odd. Then, after Yarra Valley shot away to 80 for no wicket, I threw in the ball and he bowled unchanged to take 6 for 20-odd and we won by 10 runs. We went on to be undefeated that year. His coach and accounting teacher in Year 12 was another South African, Barry Irons. In accounting class, Warren impressed with the tidiness of his figure work. It wasn't always right, says Irons, but it was always very neat. Shane took great pride in what he was doing. As a cricketer, he was, in Irons' words, a colossus. Unlike a lot of spinners, he was an athlete. He turned the ball and he was such a competitor in everything bowling, batting, and especially with field positions. He went into every match confident we would win it outright, and he radiated this confidence to his teammates. He would have made a very good Australian captain. He just needed to not have a telephone. Warren meandered his way to the Cricket Academy in Adelaide via a failed footballing stint at St Kilda, a season of club cricket in England, and a motherload of cheese sandwiches and beer. Coach Jack Potter was struck instantly by Warren's self-assurance and sense of mischief. He walked into my office as if it was his office. Walked in, big smile, sat down. He gave the impression that the world revolved around him a bit. Then again, he was such a nice, friendly sort of kid that you couldn't growl at him. Even so, Potter did occasionally have to turn disciplinarian. Early on, says Potter, I caught Shane smoking. And I said, Shane, this is a publicly funded elite sports institution. If I catch you smoking again, you're out. Warren's response was to offer a cheeky smile and say, then you won't catch me. And I never did. In a sports magazine segment that Potter still has on videotape, a teenage Warren with a lead guitarist's blonde mullet chats easily with the camera, an early portent to the media fluency to the knack of dispensing charm that continues to pour out of him and to serve him well. I got to know him, Potter says fondly, and I got to like him. And he adds, Once we were going up to Darwin and Shane was sitting next to me on the plane and I told him that one way to get the attention of a girl is to go up to her and say, And yourself? Everywhere we went in Darwin he would walk up to people and try it out. And yourself? He had this warmth, this sense of humour. He was liked by the other academy kids too. Maybe a couple were a bit jealous because he'd arrived late and because of the attention he attracted, but he was generally a popular kid. And when it came to turning a cricket ball, he was a good student. He could already control his leg break and spin it a mile when Potter sent him away to practice his other one. After a week or two of bowling a tennis ball down the dorm corridor, says Potter, Shane came up to me and said, come to the indoor nets, I've got something to show you. He then unleashed these near-perfect top spinners. Damien Fleming, a future Test teammate, 
went on a youth tour of the Caribbean with Warren in 1990. He spun his leg break, but he didn't quite have his flipper, Fleming recalls. And yet it's funny, he was already this big personality. It was almost like he was a star and he wanted the attention, but his game wasn't quite up to it yet. Sixteen months later, he earned a test call-up and a mauling from the bat of Ravi Shastri. A year after that, he was routing the West Indies at the MCG and stupefying their captain, Richie Richardson, with his flipper. And on the 4th of June, 1993, Warne ambled in to bowl his first ball in a test match in England. It is possible to get lost in the hype around the Gatting ball. As I searched YouTube for a refresher, I wondered whether it had pitched on or about the popping crease, breaking nearly square behind Mike Gatting's legs. Then I found it, and it is actually more beautiful for the fact that it didn't do any of that. It's a conventional leg spinner, drifting away and then tearing back across the batsman to clip the top of off stump. Worn stock in trade for 14 seasons, although delivered with the effortless pivot and snap that typified the years before his shoulder started to degrade. What stamped it as perfect theatre was Gatting's reaction. It was as though someone had just nicked his lunch, joked Graham Gooch of his rotund batting partner. Gatting was entitled to feel cheated. The ball started wide of leg and wobbled further away. What physicists term the Magnus effect and what cricketers call giving it a rip. To a delivery pitch that wide, any decent player of spin, which Gatting was, would be looking to tuck bat behind pad and kick the ball away. But the turn was too severe, too fast. The forgotten aspect of the ball of the century and the true augury of the champion career to come is that Warren bowled a carbon copy in his second over. This time Robin Smith did well to get an edge. Two wickets in eight turbocharged balls. He came off those ashes, Fleming remembers, and it was fair income like Merv Hughes or Dennis Lilly bowling leg spin. It was as if he'd always wanted this attention. And now... With the spotlight on him, he thrived. For us fans, watching Warren became the greatest show on turf. Between 1994 and 1998, seven of my mates would drive from Melbourne to Adelaide every Australia day because one Warren test match a summer wasn't enough. Haas, Matster, Pete, Jeff, Wadey, Phil and I would stay at West Beach Caravan Park And the reliability of Adelaide's Australia Day heatwave meant we never, ever pitched a tent. In 1995, I saw every ball of the test, only to miss the deadly worn flipper that bamboozled Phil Tufnell and finished England's second innings because a snack bar-bound woman had stood up in front of us to inquire of her husband whether he wanted a Snickers bar. This moment is now canonised in Adelaide trip history as the Snickers bar incident. For the record, the husband refused the Snickers bar. Warren, I suspect, would have said yes. It was so much fun watching him. In an era when batsmen were raised believing a flipper to be a talkative, crime-solving dolphin, Warren carved them to pieces. On one occasion, his anointed bunny, Daryl Cullinan, was fielding out deep in front of the Adelaide Hill. A group of fans began droning, Daryl, Daryl matching the exact intonation of Bart and Lisa heckling Daryl Strawberry in a famous episode of The Simpsons. Cullinan turned around, told the crowd to get fucked, and returned his attention to the game. A broken man, he went on to average a respectable 44.21 in his test career, but 12.75 against Warren and Australia.
Confronting the spectre of Warren was half the battle. There were times, says Fleming, when I used to watch England, New Zealand and South African batters just blocking half volleys. You'd think he's always going to get five for They should at least make him go for a hundred. But collaring Warren, a feat Indian batsman managed on occasion, was easier said than done. Towards the end, when a shoulder injury didn't leave him with much of a flipper, he had four differently shaped leg breaks. And in a Channel 9 masterclass with Mark Nicholas in 2006, he explained his famous control. After offering some fascinating technical insights, relax your grip, think high, spin up, follow through, Warren said he didn't aim for a particular spot on the pitch. Rather, he thought about the shapes he wanted to induce in the batsman. I think about what shot I want the batsman to play. Do I want him to go back and defend? Do I want him to come forward and drive? Do I want him to sweep? That allows me to bowl exactly where I want rather than focusing in on a spot. I've got my plan and then I just have to execute it to get the batsman out. Australia's 10 post-worn spinners, and this was written in 2011, must laugh at the casual way he throws out those five little words. Just have to execute it. To quote Gideon Haig, paraphrasing Norma Desmond, Warney is still big, it's the cricket that got small. An Eddie Perfect musical, a TV Tonight show, commentary spots, promotional burgers, talking figurines, poker tournaments, hair growth miracles, the Rajasthan Royals, Simone, Liz, not Simone, not Liz. It's 2011, nearly five years since he last played a test match, and Warney is bigger than ever. Given the off-field soap opera of his life, yielding scandals in such diverse fields as cavorting with bookmakers, performance-enhancing drugs, cheating on endorsement contracts, cheating on a spouse, as well as his pioneering, genre-defining work in what is nowadays known as sexting, you might be forgiven for thinking Australia might not have forgiven. But there is something about Warren that draws him back to us. It's not just his inarguable sporting greatness. Adam Gilchrist, Glenn McGrath, Ricky Ponting and Steve Waugh all had that, and yet none have been grabbed as part of the nation's cultural property the way Warren has. My view is that there is an openness about Warren, a desire to be liked, a warmth, a willingness to give of himself that means he genuinely is liked, loved even. Jack Potter and Warren's school day coaches talk of him surprising them with his efforts to secure them match tickets. He has his charitable foundation. And he was one of the first to sign up for the Christchurch Earthquake Benefit Match in Wellington. In a profile for the monthly, entitled Beach Boy, Haig recalled reading a book while waiting for Warren to finish shooting a TV advertisement. When Warren arrived, Haig says, he asked what I was perusing. I explained it was an account of the hurricane that destroyed Galveston in 1900 and its role in the development of accurate weather forecasting. Warren nodded. I read this book once, he said. It was about UFOs. Haig continues, At the time, I winced slightly. On reflection, I found the remark endearing. Most sportsmen wouldn't have bothered asking what I was reading, let alone trying to form a reply. Warren seeks a connection with people. It's often been commented that he needs you to like him. He also, I think, wants to like you. When Eddie Perfect wrote Shane Warren the musical, Warney, despite the certainty that his failings, even his marriage would be lampooned, turned up. He turned up on opening night and timed his front-page Herald Sun endorsement, 
extremely entertaining and with some excellent songs that have been well thought out and delivered in a fun way to maximise ticket sales. On Twitter, at Warn888 gives more of himself than the average celebrity, offering up tweets such as, never give up on anything or anyone. Forgive someone who has upset you and you can get what you want if you really want it. Sorry, Mick. He has, as I write this, 466,007 followers. Of resident Australians, only former Prime Minister at Kevin Rudd PM has more. Some might be there for the peaks into Warren's scandal-drenched life. At the height of the Liz Hurley media circus, a cheeky Warren tweeted, P.S. For the record, my so-called big delivery to my house was not a mattress. It was a coffee table. Sorry to disappoint. Then followed up with, Where is the sexiest place to take Elizabeth for lunch? Suggestions, please. Chapel Street? Crown? And no, not for spaghetti on toast. But what attracts me is his zest for detail. He tells us how much he hates unstacking the dishwasher. He marvels at the rate at which his kids go through pool towels. He posts pictures of Nayan Doshi, a Rajasthan Royals teammate, with 31 pieces of chewing gum stuffed in his mouth on the team bus. My favourite series of worn tweets occurred on Saturday the 5th of March 2011. Slept good and looking forward to making pancakes for the kids' breakfast. Then swimming and making jelly with them later. A good day ahead. Thanks for suggestions. Winner looks like butter, honey and sugar. Made medium-sized thick ones. Is it showing off, flipping them in a pan? As I said, blue ribbon ice cream is best, but not always available. So creamy. Yum. Might have pancake with ice cream after kids. Shh. Just tried to flip a pancake. Oops. Let's try that again now. Kids saying, Dad, stop trying to flip. More determined now. Flipper time. Last attempt at flipping one. Going for a lot more wrist action. Behave. Keep you posted. No. And to round it out. One small step for a pancake in fry pan. One giant leap for SW. Yes, yes, yes. Never give up. Keep trying is my lesson of the day. Content. By coincidence, I was also making pancakes for my kids' breakfast that Melbourne morning. Warren's crosstown heroics even encouraged me to attempt a flipper or two, the penalty being a splash of scalding butter on my right wrist, the reward being awestruck admiration from my two preschoolers and a feeling of kinship with Australia's greatest leg spinner. He has that knack, does our Warney. Then, one day we woke up, and he was gone. For me, it was one of those celebrity deaths where I'll always remember the circumstances of how I found out. 3.15am, dry mouth, sip of water, picking up a phone my wife has suggested should never be picked up at 3.15am. Check Facebook. A photo of Adelaide Drive host Julian Schiller, whose arm is around a dishevelled, open-shirted Mick Malloy, whose arm is around a smart-suited, luminously grinning Warney. All cheekbones, side part and smile. The rare athlete who went to skinny after he gave it all away. I glanced at what Jules had written. Difficult to comprehend that such a larger-than-life character is no longer with us. Such a sad day. Vale Warney. Vale Warney? That didn't make sense to my 3.15am brain. I did that sickening modern world shift from the rumour mill of the socials to the hard facts of the news sites... 
hoping Jules might be wrong, knowing he almost certainly wasn't. And there it was, Shane Warne, dead of a heart attack at 52. I didn't sleep for the rest of the night. A few attempts, but each time I picked the phone back up, checking the news, reading the tributes, counting in a sombre dawn, Australia wasn't going to be ready for this. Australia wasn't ready for this. Bradman was 92 when he died. The nation had a chance to prepare itself. This is unbelievable, the cricket writer Peter Lawler tweeted. This is terrible, was my tweet reply. Cricket fans holding virtual hands together. He is our generation's Bradman. I was commissioned to write the piece I'm reading now for a book, Australia, Story of a Cricket Country, in 2011, that anointed Warren as the country's second greatest player. The gap to Bradman might be considerable, but Warren was the purveyor of an enigmatic art. He didn't just take more wickets than anyone else in history, save morally. He made his opponents look ridiculous. He made us laugh. There have been many tributes that have talked about his imperfections. Fast food, cigarettes, women. A lot of people theorising that we loved him because he wasn't perfect. But I loved him for his perfection. His perfection of spin bowling. Warney, rest in peace. You are so much fun. He really was brilliant to watch. I think cricket has missed him as a player and will now miss him as a personality. Thanks for listening to this Speak Ola Reads episode. We might do a few more of them. If you want to support me and my writing, all my sports writing is available at tonywilsonauthor.com. 1989, the great grand final is one that might appeal. Or Australia United, Adventures at the Germany World Cup 2006. If you want to support Speakola generally, please do sign up to the Patreon. We've got 51, went over the big 5-0, and you could contribute for as little as 3 bucks a month, or as much as you like. It's very much a free form. We get some nice donations as well. If you don't want to do Patreon, you can just go to speakola.com forward slash donate. Both those addresses are in the show notes. I don't have any copies of Australia Story of a Cricket Country available. It was a beautiful coffee table photo laden book. Chris Ryan did an amazing job on it for Hardy Grant. But you could look up Chris Ryan's writing. He's probably my favourite cricket writer. He wrote Golden Boy for, I think it was Hardy Grant as well. So check out Golden Boy. Thanks to the podcast reader for supporting us. Podread.org send them an email hello at podread.org mention speakola get the free pdf i got a regular episode in the works an interview coming up a speech coming up that's what the speakola podcast is still all about but hope you enjoyed this little breaker